Is life full of miracles, or are they exceedingly rare? Perhaps even so rare that no one has ever seen them. For some people, the birth of a child or the provision of a job is the type of everyday miracle that gives life its awe and significance. Yet for others, miracles are considered to be massive and tangible changes in the material world. That's what David Hume was talking about in the mid-18th century. They're so obvious and so unexplainable that no one could deny them. So, For example, if you could be in two places at one time, that would obviously be miraculous. If you could cure all the cases of cancer in the world in an instant, that would be a miracle. And anything short of such dramatic displays of divine power, well, that's just evidence that it's not there. The supernatural is active only when we can see it with our eyes. I wonder what constitutes as a miracle in your book. Do you have a category for humanly impossible events that nevertheless happen by the power of God? Well, to help answer these questions this morning, we'll be in John chapter 3, so I'd encourage you to turn there now. This morning we'll be in John 3, verses 1 to 16. We're in the second week of a a four-part series entitled Portraits of Jesus. We're looking at one passage in each of the four Gospels or biographies of Jesus. In John chapter 1, the author described the incredible glory and divinity of the eternal Word of God, who is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In chapter 2, we began to see the great wonders and signs that Jesus did, turning water into wine and overturning the tables in the temple teaching authoritatively to the crowds. And so we come to chapter 3. We'll have three sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Belief in the exalted Son of Man is the true miracle of God. So read with me John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Well, our our first section is found in verses 1 to 8, entitled, A True Miracle. And you see there in verse 1 that a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. So just like last week's character, Simon, who's one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus is also part of the Pharisees, uh, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they were known for their strict observance and sometimes hypocritical application of God's law. But, but Nicodemus wasn't only a Pharisee. Notice that verse 1 says he was a ruler of the Jews. This means that Nicodemus was part of the 70-person council known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, this was the judicial body that ruled Israel. Here's this guy's no joke. And so notice what verse 2 says. Verse 2 says that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. You see, the Pharisees, as we saw last week, they weren't exactly big fans of Jesus. So it seems that Nicodemus was somewhat embarrassed, perhaps, or ashamed to be going to Jesus. And so he goes under cover of darkness. And, and, you know, it's really interesting. In John's gospel, the theme of darkness and light is really prominent. It seems that even in saying that Nicodemus came by night, John is kind of tipping us off. Yeah, this, these are not good things happening. The, the connotations are not necessarily positive. Nicodemus might not be in a good spiritual place, but we also know that because of how chapter 2 ended, not just the time of day that he comes. Uh, just look back like three verses to chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That is, Jesus knew the hypocrisy and the insincerity of mankind. He didn't get fooled by people's praise or carried away by their applause. And then, now look at, again, how chapter 3 begins. Now, there was a certain man named Nicodemus. In the Greek, there's literally only two words separating that. Jesus knew what was in man. There was a man named Nicodemus. John's saying, watch out. This Nicodemus guy, his initial query, well, it's not quite spot on. And we see what Nicodemus says there in verse 2. Perhaps we think it's going to be really negative after that introduction. Uh, But then he says this. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so for actually, for all the negative connotations associated with Nicodemus, that's not a bad opener. Right? I mean, This religious leader and expert on the law, he's one of the 70 most important men in ancient Israel, and he calls this upstart, itinerant rabbi, teacher. That's not half bad. It's a lot better than a lot of other people we're calling Jesus. And so he says that we know that you're from God because 
no one can do these signs. No one's able to do these signs unless God is with him. All right, so the, the role of signs is crucial in John's gospel. The, the first half of John's gospel is oftentimes known as the book of signs because of how often John organizes his stories around these miracles and their ensuing discussion. And so that's what we have here. We already saw at the end of chapter 2 that these signs supposedly led the crowd to believe in Jesus. And, and that is how it's supposed to work. The signs are like signs. Like, look this way. Don't look at the sign. The sign's not the point. The sign has an arrow on it, right? Like the parking sign. It had an arrow on it. Don't just stop at the sign. You're supposed to go to where the sign's pointing you to. And so in Jesus' day, his signs and miracles indicate the greater reality that is the divine identity of Jesus. As people see the signs, they're supposed to recognize who Jesus is. The problem is they keep obsessing over the signs and failing to recognize what the sign itself is commending because the sign isn't the point, right? So when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the point is not that this guy can get us free Panera bread for life. The point is that Jesus is the bread of life. So don't obsess about the sign, right? It's like going to Disney World. You see the Magic Kingdom sign, and you just go like, wow, look at this sign. It's a beautiful sign. It's a big sign. It's a well-lit-up sign. It's an impressive sign. Let's just hang out here all week. (laughs) That's a bad idea. We're supposed to look beyond the sign to what the sign is pointing to. And so throughout John, there's this question, do people latch onto the sign or do they see what it's pointing to? And here, Nicodemus, again, it's actually a little bit surprising. He seems to kind of be on the right track. He affirms that Jesus is from God because of the impressive miracles that no one else is able to do. He marvels at the great wonders that Jesus is working. And then we see Jesus' response in verse 3. Look there. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this might seem totally out of place, right? Like, totally random. Why did Jesus just change the subject? Well, actually, I don't think he did. The, The ESV shows the connection, but just to translate the Greek a little more literally... Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher from God because no one is able to do these signs unless God's with him. To which Jesus replies, unless one is born again, he's not able to see the kingdom of God. So do you see what's going on? Nicodemus is super impressed with these external miracles. You know, like, wow, these things are amazing. No one is able to do such things. To which Jesus responds, you think being able to do these miraculous signs is impressive? I'll tell you a more impressive miracle. Being able to see the kingdom of God because you've been born again. That is a truly mighty work. That is a true work of God. By kingdom of God, Jesus is referring to the the rule and the reign of God in this world. Currently, the reign of God is evident in the lives and hearts of his people. 
And when Christ returns, that kingdom of God, well, it will become more tangible and recognized, as it were. More evident to an even greater degree because, you know, Christ is king now. But his kingdom isn't recognized by all the other kings and peoples of the earth. All that will change when he returns in glory. And so no one's able to see God's kingdom, uh, that is to experience it, unless they are born again. Okay, and we'll talk about the translation of that word, because Jesus is using a double meaning. And so Jesus makes two points here. So first, you must be born again. That's what verse 3 is saying, right? While there is a physical birth that grants us life in this world, we need a spiritual rebirth to enter God's kingdom. Because we are not qualified to enter God's kingdom simply by virtue of being alive. There is something that prevents our entry into God's happy land. And that's our sin. Because of our sin nature and the sinful choices we make, we are disqualified from entering God's kingdom. We're alienated from God. As Ephesians 2, 1 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so while we may be physically alive, all of us are born spiritually dead. We love ourselves more than we love God. We don't love our neighbor as we ought. We prize and we cherish our own autonomy rather than Christ being king over our lives. And so to be clear, um, The reason we're not in God's kingdom is not God, but us. We don't want to be there. We want Scott's kingdom. And so to enter, we must be spiritually reborn. Yet that that word translated again in the Greek, I'm guessing your Bible has a footnote, the ESV does. That word translated again is deliberately ambiguous on Jesus' part. And it can also be translated from above. So Jesus is either saying, you could translate it, you must be born again, in verse 3, or you must be born from above. And that's that that second reality that Jesus further explains in verse 5. So Nicodemus totally misunderstands Jesus' point in verse 4. You know, he says, how can a man be born when he's old? Totally misses the spiritual plane and reality that Jesus is operating at. And then in verse 5, look there. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, to be born again, well, that spiritual rebirth is only possible as we are born from above by God's Holy Spirit. That's the second thing Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus and to us. In referring to water and the Spirit, Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel 36, where in verse 25 it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. So the water symbolizes cleansing, and the spirit, the agent of that cleansing, as we're born again or regenerated. And thus, Jesus explains that 
regeneration or being born again is from above. It is affected by God's power, by his spirit. And it's truly a miracle because it's God's work. Right? So if this were merely a human decision, well, then conversion would be a little bit like choosing a different toothpaste at the grocery store. You know, you decide, you're the actor, you're responsible, you can do it. But we're not spiritually neutral. We are spiritually dead. And so, what makes being born again or conversion such a miracle is that it has to happen from God. We cannot effect it ourselves. But it is God's spirit. You know, you and I can't cause ourselves to be born again any more than a baby can cause his or herself to be born. This means that whether you became a Christian at 6 or 16 or 60, it is a miracle. It didn't matter how much your parents prayed for you or how often you went to church or how often you read your Bible. None of those things in and of themselves could do it. It took God's Holy Spirit to take us from spiritual death to spiritual life. You know, it's, it's basically like God breathing life into Adam and Eve. How much did Adam and Eve contribute to their being made alive? Zero, right? That's the same, it's the same with us. Jesus' point in verse 6 is, is just that, to emphasize how helpless we are in this, right? We are fleshly, which I don't think here means sinful, but just means that it's referring to our earthly weak condition, and so we beget flesh. That's the only thing we can produce. But God is a spirit, and so he can give life to our spirits. And actually, John has repeated, he's said this earlier, this is a repetition of what he said in chapter 1, verse 13. John describes those who have become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's not ethnicity or human striving that causes someone to be born again. It's God. Uh, this is also what we read about earlier, what Dave led us in reading in Article 8 of the Statement of Faith. Did you notice that? We're reading about regeneration. It's a work of God in our hearts, and this inward change secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. So friends, I wonder, have you been born again? Have you been born from above? It's possible to be like Nicodemus and to have a relatively high view of Jesus, to be quite involved in religious things, going to services and reading your Bible and serving in this way or that. But have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit so changed your heart, given you affection for Christ? Are there the holy fruits the evidences of repentance and faith in your life. To the kids in the room, it's wonderful that you're here. We love having you here. 
I'm so grateful for your parents who take you to church and who care about your spiritual life. I wonder for you, have you been born again? It's great growing up in a Christian home and going to church and reading Christian books and stories, but it's no substitute for being born again. Those things don't make you a Christian. But if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sins, led you to trust in Christ, that's evidence of his work. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus makes the point that this spirit-induced life is comparable to the wind. Uh, it's the same word in Greek, pneuma, that blows. You, you hear it sound, that is, you see the effects of it, but good luck trying to corral it or control it. Beloved, you and I have no more effect on the wind of the atmosphere than we do on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You know, we desperately want our family and our friends to trust in Christ. But we can't make them believe. That is his work. And so we pray earnestly for him to, to move. We ask for his help. And, and the other thing we do is we do speak the gospel. For although we can't control God's life-giving spirit, we can attend ourselves to the means that he uses to bring people to life. Namely, the gospel. As Jesus says just a few chapters later in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Okay, that's basically what we've just read, right? The spirit is, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and life. So Jesus' words are the means by which the Spirit uses to impart life. So if we want people to be born again by God's Spirit, our role is to speak Jesus' word to them. Or as Peter says in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living an abiding word of God. Fellow Christians, what this means is that we should be bold in speaking the gospel to others. You know, if regeneration was the result of someone's natural disposition to Christianity, I think we could be forgiven for being pretty reluctant in sharing the gospel. Because like, oh my gosh, this person's just so far from Christ, there's just no way they're going to believe because it's up to them. But when we realize that God is sovereign and he uses our words, he uses Jesus' words, that that is the, the vehicle that his spirit uses to move people to life, well, then we could just go tell everyone. Because it doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter where they've been spiritually. If God can save us, well, he can definitely save them. Our job is to get the gospel from our lips to their ears. God's job is to get it from their ears to their hearts. The Spirit is not limited by our imperfect explanations of the gospel, nor of the spiritual state of our hearers. Right? So he's going to do what he's going to do. And so let's do what we got to do. 
This also explains why the church should be marked by tremendous diversity and unity. There's diversity because the Spirit blows where He will. He regenerates artsy folks and engineers, educated and uneducated, black and white and Hispanic, city dwellers and suburbanites, single and married, young and old, and everyone in between. Praise God. And we have tremendous unity because this is, this is all from God. He is composing the church as he sees fit. This is a true miracle of God. Let's turn to our, our second section now, found in verses 9 to 13, entitled, A Heavenly Testimony. Literally, Nicodemus asks in verse 9, how are these things able to be? Jesus responds in verse 10, are you the teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus' point is that as a teacher, there's a higher bar for you. You should understand these things if you're a teacher of God's word. I think one of the application of this is James's weighty words in James 3, where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is where Nicodemus was failing. And then the next few verses, Jesus' point is pretty simple. Believe me, because I've got eyewitness testimony for what I'm telling you. I am the SME. I am the subject matter expert on all things heaven. You see it in verse 11. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you don't receive our testimony. What's the, the first person plural doing here? You know, the, the we? Well, Jesus is referring to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. In short, Jesus is testifying about spiritual truths. And as God does these signs and wonders, again, they are pointers that Jesus is God's authorized messenger. As God does these miracles... He's affirming and testifying, yes, you should listen to my son. I'm God, and I approve this message from Jesus. And then look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe me, how can you believe me if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man which is Jesus' title for himself. Jesus is basically saying, uh, when was the last time you guys were in heaven? Do you have a better informed source on heavenly happenings than me? Guys, I've, I've been to heaven. You should listen to me when I tell you spiritual truths. Because when we don't listen to Jesus' teaching, when we don't listen to his word, it's a bit like me trying to tell Ramaz what Egypt is like. So Ramaz is from Cairo, and if I go up to him, I'm like, man, let me tell you all about the pharaohs, the pyramids, and he corrects me, and I'm like, nah, man, I got this. That's just foolish. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus is the ultimate heavenly messenger. There's no better source and authority on God 
than Jesus. He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from him. He rules all heaven and earth. You, you know, people eat up those books from the, the people who've, you know, they, they say they've been to heaven and back, and they'll tell, all, they'll tell you all about it for $29.99. Well, that's, it's, a, it's a right impulse. It's just directed to the wrong person. Jesus has dwelled in heaven for all eternity. He's come down to bring us truth and light. We can trust his testimony. Jesus had VIP access to all of heaven. And so let's study his book. What does it mean when Jesus says, uh, when he calls himself the son of man? There at the end of verse 13. At a basic level, it means that Jesus is a human. But more than simply affirming his humanity, this title is from Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel 7, the prophet sees a vision of the end of times when God has destroyed every rival kingdom and throne to establish his own kingdom. And this son of man comes riding on the clouds to receive the kingdom of God from God himself. And so Jesus' point is that he is the son of man. And that as the Son of Man, he and he alone has descended from heaven and will ascend to heaven again. Friends, Jesus is God's heavenly messenger. And so we arrive at our final section in verses 14 to 16, entitled, An Exalted Savior. Look there. As Moses, and as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, we read the story of Moses lifting up the serpent earlier in the service. That, that was the Numbers 21 reading. It, Israel was grumbling and impatient with the Lord. They didn't trust his provision. They maligned him with their words. They accused him in their thoughts. And so after much grumbling on multiple occasions, God sends these fiery serpents. As punishment for sin, God's wrath broke out against them. But then the people repented. They asked for Moses' help. Moses interceded. He prayed on behalf of the nation. And God relented. And here's where it gets really interesting. Notice, this is fascinating. Notice, God didn't take away the serpents. This just hit me the other day. He could have. He could, all right, I'll take away the serpents. Right, like he did that with the plagues, right? He sends the frogs or the flies and that, and he takes them away. He sends the serpents, but he doesn't remove them. The punishment for sin remains, but for those who trust God's word, whose repentance is proved by taking God at his word, he gives a means of escape, a way of salvation. As he told Moses to build a signal or a pole and to put a bronze serpent on it. So that whoever suffered the consequences of their sin, if they trusted in God's provision and looked to the bronze serpent by faith, well, they would live. And so, how does this have to do with Jesus? What, what's the connection that he's making? Well, because of 
our sin, we too are in trouble, aren't we? Because of our grumbling and complaining. Because of our impatience and our ingratitude. Our accusations against God and our slandering of his character, we deserve God's wrath, just like Israel. We deserve death. And yet, because God is merciful, because of his love, he's provided a means of escape. He's not completely taken away the consequences of sin. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So sin still leads to death. But there is a means of escape. Just as the Israelites had to take God at his word and look to the bronze serpent for life, so we too have to take God at his word and believe in Christ for salvation. Just as Moses prayed for the people, now Christ prays for us. He intercedes on our behalf. But it's not just Christ generically that saves us from our sins and their deadly consequences. It is the Son of Man lifted up. Did you notice that? Uh, Look again at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, if you know Daniel 7, you might be thinking, the Son of Man lifted up. Oh, well, that's the exaltation of the Son of Man. Yeah, that's when he gets the kingdom. That's when he gets the crown. That's when he gets the glory. That's the Son of Man lifted up. But that's actually not what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus mean by saying the Son of Man must be lifted up? Oh, friends, Jesus is not referring to his resurrection or his ascension into heaven, but rather to his bloody death on the cross. Jesus is referring to his death. And we know this because John tells us, John 12, 32 and 33, Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, same word, I will draw all people to myself. And then John, super helpfully, inserts this editorial comment. He said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Friends, the irony is that the exaltation of the Son of Man, when he's most glorified and made much of, when his glory is seen and beheld at its fullness and apex, it's at the cross. Consider, in Moses' day, the serpent, the serpents were an instrument of death and punishment for sin. And yet now, in God's mercy and grace, the serpent became an instrument of salvation. And so it is with Christ. So it is with the cross. The cruel Roman cross. That method of death and punishment for sin has now become our salvation. As we look to the cross and see the Son of Man dying for our sins, we are saved. God's wrath is appeased. Our sins are forgiven. And here's the really crazy thing. In Numbers 21.8, the Lord tells Moses, literally, okay, to make for yourself a snake and put it on a sign. That is, put it on a marker or a pole. 
or a sign. It's the exact same word used throughout John's gospel. And so Jesus, in saying that his death will be like the snake sign, is saying that when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, that will be a sign. In fact, it will be the greatest of all the signs. Better than turning water into wine, better than feeding the 5,000. Because throughout John, again, these signs point to the identity of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, do you want to see the, the fullest of my identity? The sign that most clearly reveals who I am? Look at the cross. And, and let's think, well, where's the power in the cross? I can see the power in you know, feeding 5,000. What, what's the power in the cross? Well, in the cross, he defeats our sin. At the cross, the devil is defeated. At the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. At the cross, we are saved. Friends, salvation has always been by grace through faith. Israel didn't earn God's mercy, but simply accepted it by believing God's promise and looking at God's provision. And so it is with us. We don't earn God's mercy, but he offers it in Christ. Our job is to look at him by faith. That's what verse 15 says. Now that the Son of Man has been lifted up, dying for our sins, now that he's paid for all our debt, we get in on eternal life as we believe in him. And so our passage ends in verse 16. It's perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. As we considered in last week's Sunday evening service, biblical love is genuine affection expressing itself in tangible actions. That's what God does. His love, his genuine compassion for us is expressed in the giving of his son. Oh, friends, hallelujah. What a savior. If you're here and you've not trusted in Christ as the means of salvation for your sins, do so today. He is God's appointed escape, the means of deliverance. Trust in his perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection to escape the consequences of your spiritual rebellion, to enjoy the eternal life, believe in Christ even today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you extend eternal life even to sinners such as us. Father, we praise you that you, oh, that you would sacrifice your beloved only son. Father, we pray if there are any here who, for whom your Holy Spirit has not worked regeneration, we pray that he would blow through here even this morning, that you would grant spiritual life. Lord Jesus, we Preach your word because we know that it is spirit and life. Would you work as you say you will work? Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great love. Help us, help us to trust in it, to trust in your cross all the more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.